Good evening. I'm Nina Instead, and you are listening to episode four of Dreaming with Nina, the Dreamcast created and then resurrected to help you, dear listener, get the hours of rest you richly deserve. Here we are in the late spring of 2020. We're dealing with our regular everyday stressors like work, bills, family, social pressure, you know, the usual stuff we fret about. But that wasn't enough, so the universe added a global pandemic to the mix. Apparently, this is to keep us on our toes or send us a message or something. But whatever you're dealing with in your day-to-day, I hope that you are safe, comfortable, and healthy. If you're listening to this episode, you should be ready to rest. Dreaming with Nina is best enjoyed when you are settling in for the night, or perhaps getting a nap in at a time that works best with your schedule. I know that since we've been sheltering in place, I've sought out an hour or two each afternoon to rest quietly, a period where I try and settle my brain. I'm not very good at settling my brain, and I found that listening to something calm and soothing helps the process along. The purpose of a dreamcast, aside from giving me a chance to write about something other than murder, mysteries, and missing persons, is to offer you, the listener, a calming option as you fall asleep. Something that isn't murder, doom, and dread. Yeah, I've listened to my fair share of podcasts to help me drift off. But for the sake of my mental and emotional well-being, I've changed my listening habits. I'm selecting lighter topics for my late-night enjoyment. Now, friend, you should be comfortable, relaxed. Hopefully, you're in a place where you can rest undisturbed. And if you're in bed getting settled for the night, take a moment to check your alarm clock and set your phone or other devices to the Do Not Disturb setting. I've worked on Already Gone, over the years, one of the things I most enjoy about doing the podcast is exploring locations that I'm familiar with, like places that I've lived or worked. If you've listened to Already Gone, you likely know that when I was young, I lived with my grandparents in Berkeley off and on for a few years. I've spoken fondly of Berkeley. And my childhood was unusual in that we moved frequently but we never moved very far. We stayed in the same area. My childhood was dotted with periods of wild inconsistency and wider patches of stability. And maybe you're like me. I'm still processing the strangeness of my childhood. I thought I'd take some time this week to lay it all out, at least the geographical parts, the moves, the towns, the houses themselves. This episode will be a geographic exploration of suburban Detroit as seen through my eyes back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I've toyed with how I would explore this in an episode. But honestly, it's one of those things I've always wanted to dig into, to pull it apart and examine it. As an adult, you know, looking at it over the lens of time, 
reviewing the things that I experienced decades earlier. And I had an unusual childhood. The myriad adventures and trials of my youth could be an episode or a series in and of itself, but I don't want to do that. I know other friends who had far more interesting childhoods, from growing up a barefoot farm girl to traveling the world, or those who moved military base to military base with their parents who were in the armed forces. So I'm going to take a surface look at the past, my past, and I'm inviting you along for the ride. So settle in, dear listener. Make sure you are comfortable and calm, that you are safe and warm, that you are relaxed and ready, and come with me to a brick bungalow in the suburbs, very first place that I called home. Manhattan, it's not a name you associate with Metro Detroit, but it is the name of the street where we lived when I was born. Shortly before my parents got married, they bought a modest house on Manhattan Street in Oak Park. The house was a bungalow, and the street, Manhattan, was just south of 11 Mile Road, about half a mile from where Interstate 696 would eventually cut through the Oakland County suburbs. Back then, Oak Park, Berkeley, Hazel Park, Ferndale, Birmingham, Bloomfield, these were the northern suburbs. Places like Rochester, Troy, Farmington Township, West Bloomfield, sure, those were suburbs too, but they were largely rural, with farm fields, horses, dairy cows. I was very small when we lived on Manhattan. And that's how my parents always referred to it. Not the Oak Park house, not the bungalow, but on Manhattan. And we lived just a couple houses from Coolidge Highway, a road that leads north to Berkeley and south to Detroit. Across Coolidge from Manhattan was a grocery store. And I can't remember if the store was A&P or Farmer Jack, but I can tell you it wasn't a Chatham store because there was a Chatham store on 11 Mile in Royal Oak near the library. And there was another Chatham on 9 Mile at Coolidge in Oak Park, I think. Either way, Chatham Grocers, a local chain, they disappeared from the Michigan scene in the mid-1980s, and most of the Chatham stores were scooped up by Kroger. But behind this grocery store, that was either a Farmer Jack or an A&P, but was not a Chatham, there was a small park, and the park had swings and a slide and a jungle gym. And I remember my dad taking me across Coolidge so I could play there. I remember waiting at the crosswalk with my dad, watching the streetlights impatiently, wanting to get to the play area. And the park and the store, they weren't in Oak Park where I lived. They were in the neighboring community of Huntington Woods. Huntington Woods was a fancier location than either Oak Park or Berkeley. It's still a somewhat prestigious address, but their neighborhoods, in my opinion, aren't that much nicer than certain neighborhoods in Berkeley. But I digress. There was a little girl who lived in Huntington Woods named Emily. 
And I remember playing with her once or twice and asking my dad where Emily was on times that we went to the park and Emily wasn't there. It's so funny the things that your brain decides to hold on to. And back to Huntington Woods, the actress Kristen Bell, who you may recognize from the television show Veronica Mars and the Frozen movies, she grew up in Huntington Woods. One of the reasons my parents chose the house on Manhattan is that it was just two short miles from my grandparents' place in Berkeley, so it was super convenient for my family. I have no memories of my bedroom in this house or of the kitchen, but I do remember the plush blue carpeting in the living room, a soft blue, not powder blue, not country blue, but somewhere in between. Whatever shade it was, I'm certain it was considered quite stylish at the time. I'm also pretty sure that my mother wallpapered the entire house. Like me, my mother was easily distracted But when she wanted something wallpapered, she was happy to do it herself, and she did it quite well. I can't tell you why we moved away from the house on Manhattan, but we moved around my third birthday, and from there we relocated to Madison Heights. This is the first time I will live in Madison Heights, but my parents had lived there before. I believe that my parents' first apartment, before they bought the house on Manhattan, was in Madison Heights off Stevenson Highway. The Madison Heights house was on Alden, just west of DeQuinder and well north of the hospital. We were probably half a mile from Universal Mall. Do you remember Universal Mall? They had this amazing space mural painted in one part of the shopping area. It was so cool. I can remember being three or four years old, riding in my lime green umbrella stroller and looking up at that amazing mural. It was so modern. It was so funky. When I was a teenager, years later, Universal Mall was home to my favorite cheapy movie theater, the Cinemark. Tickets for maybe a dollar or two dollars for movies that were on their way out of the theaters and headed to VHS or DVD. They had the funniest, catchy theme song. We're gonna party, we're gonna rock. We've got tickets to the Cinemark. Cinemark lets the good times roll. Let's be quiet for the show. So I loved going to the movies. I haven't been in a long time, but popcorn and a soda and a movie on the big screen, that was one of my favorite things to do on the weekends. I don't think my parents were particularly happy on Alden because we didn't live there very long, maybe a year, maybe 15 months. This house was not a bungalow. It was a three-bedroom brick ranch and a sea of other three-bedroom brick ranches. This house had a pool and a swing set in the backyard. Absolute heaven for a kid, right? My mother hated that pool and she kept it tarped over all year long. But me, I was desperate to swim. I loved to swim. My parents eventually hired someone to remove the pool and fill in the backyard. And you can make the sad trombone noises here. I never did get to swim in that pool. Also in the backyard was a concrete patio, and I remember playing on that. I had a big yellow metal Tonka truck. It was a dump truck. 
And it weighed a ton because it was actually metal, not plastic. And I would roll that back and forth on the patio. Also on the patio, my mom had this three-stair step wrought iron plant stand. And it's just like it sounds. It looked like someone took three steps from an iron staircase and put plants on it. I remember this stair step thing being yellow, but I guess it could have been white or maybe green. Having house plants was so chic in the 70s. And speaking of the 70s, I remember a couple of trips to Pier 1, the big Pier 1 store on Woodward near 13 Mile. That building, that store had three stories, a basement, a main floor, and an upstairs. We would go there to buy decor for the house palm leaves and pillows, shit like that. Pier 1 was best known, at least at the time, for the Papasan chair. Remember those? Big, round, saucer-like bamboo frame with a tufted circular pillow on top? I don't think we ever had a Papasan chair at our house, but we did have one of those hanging basket chairs on a floor stand metal hook thing. We also had a peacock-backed, woven rattan chair. I'm sure it was super swanky at the time. I don't know what became of the peacock chair, but that hanging basket chair was in my bedroom when I was a teenager. And let me tell you, I was the envy of my peers because of that chair. Oddly enough, today, my teenage daughter wants a chair like that for her bedroom. And back when I was not much older than my daughter is now, I got a job at that Pier 1 store. I was a cashier, and we sold potpourri and all sorts of crazy shit. It was a great place to work. For whatever reason, and if I had to guess, I would say marital discord, my parents sold the house on Alden. When they sold the house, my dad moved into a rented room and my mom moved back in with her parents and she took me with her. This would be the start of me living in Berkeley. My grandparents' house in Berkeley was a brick colonial, very traditional, with a fireplace and three bedrooms. The yard around the house was dotted with elm trees, great big soaring elm trees taller than the house. And we would lose those elm trees in the late 1970s to Dutch elm disease. And honestly, I still remember my uncle, who was so young. He was probably, I don't know, 28, 29. He was a baby. But he worked as an iron worker. And he came to my grandparents' house one weekend with ropes and chainsaws and a harness. And he spent two days pulling down these huge trees while my grandmother and I watched from her patio. Grandma had this neat little seating area in the backyard that overlooked the street. Now, while my uncle was working, I wasn't allowed to leave her side because it was all like chainsaws and falling branches. And even now, all these years later, I still remember the smell of those trees, their vulnerable branches and trunks as they were being taken apart. And my uncle would bring my grandmother sections of the tree, sections that he'd cut down to a manageable size, and he'd show her where the damage was. We were sad about the trees. She was lamenting the loss of shade and greenery, and my uncle, you know, I bet he climbed those trees when he was a boy. I bet he was sad about the passing of time and his inability to save a childhood companion 
the trees who had let him climb in them some 20 years earlier. So the city of Berkeley, it started as a farming community in the 1840s. People who lived in Detroit bought and cleared land where they could raise cattle to feed people who lived in the city, or maybe they planted crops and worked as farmers. By the early part of the 20th century, the face of Berkeley started to change. Around 1910, the Highland Park assembly plant was opened by Ford Motor Company near what is now Seven Mile and Woodward. That's just 10 miles from the center of Berkeley. And workers started buying and building homes in the community, and soon, more houses were being built. By the 1920s, Berkeley was starting the process to organize into a real town. The name Berkeley, it has nothing to do with California. The name came from a local farmer who lived in the community. And that farmer's name was Elmer. My grandmother's sister was married to a man named Elmer during the Second World War, but that marriage did not last. Hmm, wonder why. If you aren't familiar with the area, Berkeley is north of Detroit, between 11 Mile and Webster Avenue, and between Woodward Avenue and Greenfield. Because I moved around so much as a child, I consider Berkeley my hometown, even though I only officially, like legally, lived there for a few months when I was little. The city slogan is Berkeley, where you want to be, which I find oddly touching because for so much of my young life, that was completely true. I wanted to be at grandma's house. And listeners, I hope you have nice memories of your grandparents or maybe a favorite aunt or uncle. My grandparents were good to me and I loved them and I felt loved by them. It was pretty awesome. And I know that I'm fortunate to have had that experience. You know, my parents named me after my maternal grandmother And both my grandmother and her husband, my grandfather, spoiled me terribly. I have so many fond memories of spending time with them. With my grandfather, I remember going to the Egg and I restaurant on Woodward for breakfast, or going to the local Burger Chef restaurant on Coolidge for lunch. I remember taking my grandmother's brand new Silver Thunderbird, I think it was a 78, was such a pretty car. It was um, silver with burgundy pinstripes and a burgundy interior, and we took it to the Big Jack's car wash for a special wash and wax. I remember him taking me to Sanders for ice cream, and my grandfather wasn't retired. He was in his 50s, so he was still working. He was working on a doctorate in history, and he's taught at the University of Detroit, but You know, when I think about that time, I feel like I was with him a lot. I even remember going to U of D with him to hand out papers to his class and being so small that I was reaching up to hand papers to students who were seated at their desks. And you know, that Jack's car wash where we took grandma's Thunderbird, that was torn down years ago. It's now a CVS pharmacy, or it was the last time I looked. Also on the same block as the car wash, was a jack-in-the-box restaurant. The -the jack-in-the-box has probably been gone for 40 years. And I'm certain it's been gone longer than it was there in the first place. I started kindergarten while I lived with my grandparents, and I would make the walk through the neighborhood to Pattengill Elementary, 
This is a place we talked about in season one of Don't Talk to Strangers. My grandmother's house was a few blocks east of the school, and I didn't have any fear of getting lost. It was a pretty direct walk to the school, but I do remember wishing that I had friends to walk with. But my end of the neighborhood didn't have any kindergarten age students, so I either walked with my grandparents or got dropped off. Pattengill was built a long time ago. I'm not sure what year, but when it was built, everybody walked to school. In fact, in Berkeley, everyone still walks to school. There are no school buses in Berkeley. The town is small and the schools are also close. Pattengill did not have a drop-off lane or a special pickup area for students. What they did have was a big playground on the west end of the building. And honestly, if you're trying to pick a school for your kid, check out the playground. That's a big selling point for the kids when you pick a school. So after months of living with my grandparents, my own parents reconciled and I moved again from my grandparents' house in Berkeley to an apartment in Waterford or maybe Hugo Harbor. I'm not exactly sure, but the apartments were off Elizabeth Lake Road. And I was transferred into the local school district where I finished kindergarten at Burt Elementary. Again, I don't remember a ton about this because I was little, but my teacher had a piano in the classroom, an upright piano. It was brown wood and she would play for us. And it felt like her playing the music and the sing-alongs happened every day. And I just remember enjoying it so much. I said that when I lived in Berkeley, I wanted a group of kids to walk to school with. Well, when we moved to Waterford, I always had a group of kids to walk to school with. There were many of us living at the apartments, and we would wait for a small group of kids to form at the crosswalk. Then a parent would send us across the road to the subdivision that contained the elementary school, and the group of kids would walk to school together. One of the cool things about the apartment was that the complex was located on the lake, And I always wanted to walk down to the lake because I wanted to go swimming. I think you're seeing a pattern here. The house on Alden had a pool that I wanted to swim in. And now the apartment is on the lake that I also want to swim in. And I really wanted to go swimming and look at the boats. But visiting the lake, for me, strictly forbidden. I was not allowed to be at the lake by myself because it's not safe. And... The other thing that I remember about that apartment is that in January, the infamous blizzard of 1978 swept across Michigan, and I remember being outside playing in the snow piles for what felt like hours. This was also the year that my mother brought a new car, and she didn't buy just any car. She bought a Triumph TR7 sports car. And friends... That car was a total piece of junk. It would freeze solid in the winter, and my mom, before she'd leave in the morning, would fill a coffee mug with warm water to pour over the door handle so that it would unfreeze enough for her to get inside. And then if she was able to get inside, it was 50-50 if the car would start. I honestly think it was freezing solid. And some mornings she would do a whole like pot of water on the stove because she would need to do the warm water trick several times. My dad was driving a far less sexy but far more reliable Chevy Nova, which was yellow. I think it had a black top. The Triumph, which was the sexy little sports car, 
was dark green. And I think that my mom really wanted that car because the original James Bond, played by Sean Connery, James Bond drove a triumph in some of the films, um, Dr. No, Thunderball, and Diamonds Are Forever. The, The Triumph was a really cool car, but it just wasn't reliable. Also, it was a two-seater, making it perfect for the parents of a young child. But this is the 70s, so no one particularly cared about seatbelts, car seats, or child vehicle safety until the mid-1980s, so honestly, it was fine. The Triumph was purchased in Ferndale at what is now Hodges Subaru. She didn't keep that car very long. The TR7 was eventually traded in for a tangerine-colored Ford Pinto. Mom got rid of the TR7 about the same time we left the apartment on Cass Lake and moved to Troy. Now, when people hear about a Ford Pinto, they often think of it as the butt of many jokes, but I have fond memories of that orange car. I also remember burning the backs of my legs on those awful vinyl seats. Man, the 70s had a lot of vinyl. Is vinyl different from pleather? Because it seems like around the mid-1990s, pleather became a thing. And pleather is a much more palatable version of vinyl. And there's Nagahide. What, what's Nagahide? Um, I asked myself that, so you probably are asking yourself that. So I did a Google search, and Nagahide is a brand name, like Xerox or Kleenex. But when you hear the word, you think vinyl or photocopying or facial tissue. See? I guess in the 1960s, a marketing team invented an animal called the Naga that shed its skin, allowing you, the customer, to have a lovely Nagahide chair, couch, or whatever you wanted covered in Nagahide. They still make Naga stuffies, so if you're in the market for a quirky retro gift for someone, there you go. So part of the reason we left Waterford is that my mom's sister was getting married, but she still had several months left on her lease at Somerset Apartments, which was a swinging apartment complex adjacent to swanky Somerset Mall near Big Beaver. And yes, that is the name of the road, Big Beaver. And Coolidge in Troy. There was a Magic Pan restaurant at the end of our street. Oh, the Magic Pan was a crepe restaurant. And I could really go for a savory crepe followed by a sweet crepe for dessert. Mm, Crepes, like a Nutella crepe with strawberries and whipped cream. That sounds really good. Or like crepe Suzette, which are the orange flavored crepes. And I think sometimes they flambe them. Anyway, with my aunt moving out of her place, my family decided we would move in. While at Somerset, we lived in a two-bedroom apartment on the second floor of a building on Gulf View. And honestly, I did not like living there very much. You see, Somerset Apartments was divided into three sections. There were the townhomes, which I think were pretty nice, probably higher end than the apartments. And then the apartment complex was divided into two sections. There was the family section, which is where I wish we lived. Then there was the adult section, which is where our apartment was actually located. So each morning, as I waited for the school bus, I got to stand by myself on the side of the road. I mean, there were a lot of kids living at Somerset, but none of them lived in the same section that I did. So there I was, a dark-haired first grader waiting on the side of Gulfview Drive, 
all by myself less than two years after the last of the Oakland County child murders. Wait, I'm not going to get into that on this podcast. But let's just say that as I look back at small me waiting by myself for the school bus, I have to wonder what the hell my parents were thinking. Now, I did like my schools while we lived here. I went to Bemis, which was a fancy brand new elementary school opened in Troy. And Bemis was named for a beloved custodian. Walter Bemis was born in 1898. And it was in 1940 that he took on casual work as a custodian at the Poppleton School. The district ended up hiring him as a full-time employee and he worked there for 28 years. When Poppleton and the one-room schoolhouse it shared a campus with was targeted for demolition and replacement in 1975, it was decided that the new elementary school on Northfield Parkway would be named in his honor. Our principal at Bemis was Mr. Williams, and I remember Mr. Williams as being this sort of chubby guy with light brown hair and glasses. And my first grade teacher was Mrs. Stein, and I remember her as being sort of petite and slight with brown hair that fell to her shoulders. And she was really nice. You know, your first grade teacher should be really nice, and she was. For second grade, I think I had Mrs. Dunn, maybe Mrs. Fox, I don't remember. Um, I do remember that Mrs. Fox was very pretty and very young. She would come out to the playground and jump rope with us sometimes at lunch. I wanted to be like Mrs. Fox when I grew up, or Miss Fox. She was pretty cool. Now, the city of Troy, the earliest records of what is now Troy, was the purchase of 160 acres of land in the 1820s by a guy named Johnson Niles. This community was named Troy Corners, and it was named after Troy, New York. You see, many of the settlers in Michigan came to the area from the state of New York. In the middle part of the 20th century, Kmart would open their headquarters in Troy. They would eventually build a large campus at Big Beaver and Coolidge. And we need to talk about Big Beaver, because yeah, that is the name of the road. This road is known as Corton, Metro Parkway, and 16 Mile Road. What you call the road depends on what part of the Detroit suburbs you're in. Now, Big Beaver intersects with Interstate 75, and it is, I kid you not, Freeway Exit 69. The city of Troy is also home to Walsh College. Walsh, founded in 1922, is a business school with a specialty in accounting. Walsh was accredited in 1975 and offers a variety of business-focused degrees. Now, I was in a Troy history group on Facebook, or maybe it was a Michigan history group, and someone brought up Bonwit Teller. Bonwit Teller was a department store at Somerset, and I don't recall shopping there very often, although we probably went in to look around, but it was definitely out of our price range. But I remember the beautiful shopping bags they used to put purchases in. The bags were white with little sprays of violets painted on them. I always thought Bonwit Teller bags looked like pieces of artwork. We would stay at the apartment in Troy for just over a year. It was in February of second grade when we bought a house. And again, we bought a house in Madison Heights, just like the one on Alden. But this time, my parents picked a brick ranch off 13 Mile Road. 
We would live in this house with its avocado green appliances and carpeted kitchen floor for almost six years. This would be the longest I lived anywhere until I was an adult. And while we lived at this house for a long time, I was still at my grandparents' house every weekend. Well, now it was just my grandmother's house because my grandfather, my intense, brilliant grandfather, he passed away suddenly just before his 60th birthday. And it's unfortunate because he was a good grandfather. He was smart and kind and accomplished, but he was also a heavy smoker who enjoyed a good meal. His lifestyle caught up with him and he left us too soon. On the bright side, Grandma was always happy for me to come over. Being a widow, she liked the company, and I liked being with her. On Friday nights, we would watch Dallas and the Dukes of Hazard. She would make me ham sandwiches on toasted rye bread served with an orange on the side. And later, when my grandmother became lactose intolerant and started drinking only lactate for her morning sinka, she would buy me these cute little pints of milk for my morning cereal. Another big draw at Grandma's house was her series of well-trained toy poodles. I specifically remember a dog named Nero. Nero was charcoal gray, and he knew every trick in the book, and he liked to cuddle. These were such happy times for me as a child. And my grandmother, she... Oh, the stories I could tell you about her but know that she was a beautiful and stylish woman. And I know everybody talks about their stylish grandma, but my grandmother was wearing leather pants and high heeled boots well into her seventies. She was that kind of stylish. She also had tons of beautiful nightgowns. They were satin and silk and trimmed with lace and they were floor length and they were purchased at high-end stores like Saks Fifth Avenue, Jacobson's and yes, Bonwit Teller. These gowns were like something out of a movie. I loved to choose a fancy nightgown to sleep in when I spent the night at her house. She also, in the guest room, had this makeup table with lights and a huge array of cosmetics. And sometimes when I stayed with her, I would paint my face filled with makeup and then wash it off and do it again. And she never seemed to mind. Of course, all of this practice didn't help me much when I was older, and like other teens in the 1980s, I also had to live through the teal eyeliner and sticky lip gloss phase. Back to the house. The city of Madison Heights is another community that sprang up, at least in part, because of the auto industry. But unlike Berkeley, Madison Heights has a lot of light industrial and commercial space. In fact, the house we lived in was adjacent to one of those light industrial buildings on Stevenson Highway. Madison Heights Incorporated in 1955 and currently has two school districts operating within the city, Madison Schools and Lamphere Schools. Madison Heights is bordered by Interstate 696 on the south end and Interstate 75 on the east end. The junction of these two highways is shared with Royal Oak and Hazel Park on the southwest corner of the city. And Interstate 75 doesn't exactly run the border for the city, but it's really close to one, um, the eastern border of town. And the house in Madison Heights, I went through elementary school where I attended the local public school in the Lamphere district. 
And when it was time for middle school, my mother did not like the options in the city of Medicine Heights. So I was sent to the local parochial school starting in grade six. That was a big change because I went from wearing jeans and tops and regular sneakers to school to plaid skirts and leather shoes and monogram sweaters and white cotton Oxfords. I felt so awkward at the school because I didn't know how Catholic I needed to be as a student. My parents had never put much of an emphasis on religion until that point. Sure, I was baptized at La Salette in Berkeley as an infant, and thank you to my aunt and uncle for being my godparents, but I'd never made my first communion, and I'd never attended any religious education classes. I don't know if my mom just made up stuff about me getting catechism or if the school didn't care, but no one battered an eye when I arrived. So weekly mass, here I come. And it's funny because I don't think that we as a family ever attended church services during that time. Catholic school was fine. The kids were fine. I was pretty anxious about starting school there because I didn't know what to expect and I wasn't thrilled about the uniform, but I adjusted. When it came time for high school, my parents sent me to the local Catholic high school. But during my freshman year of high school, mom got another hankering to move. Our house in Madison Heights just wasn't nice enough anymore. She wanted something bigger, something with a better address. She managed to find yet another house right off of Coolidge Highway. The house in Troy that we moved into was just off Coolidge, just like that first house on Manhattan in Oak Park. Now that I was a mature teenager, I was way too cool for weekends with my grandmother. Those visits had started tapering off when I was in middle school and they were replaced by sleepovers at a friend's house. I'd spend Saturday afternoon at Skate World in Troy with my friends and follow that up with a sleepover. And my family was not meant to live in Troy, but Troy would be where I finished high school and where my parents finished their marriage. After living in the big pretty house in Troy for less than three years, we moved again. My mom took an apartment near her work and my dad moved to West Bloomfield and I went with him. As an adult, I wanted to find a home of my own to settle down, but I was still constantly moving. I would take apartments in Pontiac, Royal Oak, and Farmington Hills. And then I finally bought my first house when I was in my early 20s. I was so proud of it. It was just a little brick ranch near Wonderland Mall in Livonia. I loved that house. I planted flowers, and I mowed the lawn, and I shoveled the snow. And I met my neighbors, and I would take a market basket up to the White Barn on West Chicago so I could go to the farmer's market. While I lived there, I had a corner bar that I liked frequenting, and I had a job that I loved. Eventually, I grew up, I met my husband, and we bought a new house together, a place where we would live for more than a decade. And homes are funny. Since we moved away from Michigan, I've been trying to settle into a new house. I have all my same stuff. I have my pets and my people, but it's not the same. I find myself moving on autopilot through the house and being surprised that I'm here, not there. And I'm sure that will fade with time. When I was younger, I always thought that when I was grown up, I would move to Berkeley, that I would buy my grandmother's house and raise my family there. 
it was not an option to do that when we bought the house where we raised our family. And then when my grandmother passed away, her house, that darling red brick house that held so many good memories, it wasn't the place for me. I would not raise my children in that home. I would not walk my own children to Pattengill for school or give them money to walk to the store at the corner to buy candy or a soda. Those days were a chapter from my past. And I miss those days. I try to hold on to those wisps of memory when I can. From the sound of my grandmother cooking in her tiny galley-style kitchen to the feel of orange shag carpet underfoot as I raced up the stairs. I still remember those things. I still feel just a little bit like that girl who shared her grandmother's name and spent so many happy nights in her house. And when we dream... We explore all of these strange places, and sometimes our dreams are unsettling. Sometimes they are exciting or so strange that they make us laugh, or we wake up wondering what just happened. What was that dream about anyway? And sometimes in our dreams, we can visit the past. We can spend time in places and spaces and with people that no longer exist. That is the beauty of dreaming. And you, dear listener, I hope that you're now sleeping. I hope that you are resting and happy. I hope that your heart is calm and peaceful because you deserve all of the good sleep, all of the peaceful rest. You deserve to be safe and feel happy and loved. I'm Nina Instead, and I appreciate you taking this rambling journey with me. Sleep well, dear one, and please be safe.